What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We are delighted to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. We are here to answer your questions, especially for those of you who are not Catholic. Maybe you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith, and before you can move on with whatever decisions you may need to make, you would like to get those questions answered. Well, we are here for you, and here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. We'll hit one of those in just a moment here. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, well, I'm waving at you because we're streaming there right now. All you have to do is uh, put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One. And we're off to the races. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Hanging in there. Thank you. We've got an interesting question here from Karen in Connecticut. She says, good afternoon. Dr. Andrews, could you please recommend an easy read for a college student interested in learning more about our Catholic faith? Her mother is Jewish. Her father is Catholic. As I understand it, she currently attends a non-denominational Christian club at her university. However, she has expressed an interest in learning more about what it means to become a Catholic. Would it be inappropriate for me to suggest a book for her to read? And if not, could you please recommend a good one? Thanks so much, Adrienne. Uh, uh, absolutely love your show. And again, that's from Karen in Connecticut. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's a thousand books out there that could fit this description, but what about Robert Barron's book, Catholicism, a Journey to the Heart of the Faith. Yeah, that's a solid book. Yeah. And uh, there's also a, uh, a video series to go along with it. That's right. So she could check that out as well. There you go, Karen in Connecticut. Thanks so much for your question. Here's one from Pat in Buffalo, New York. Dr. Anders, what are the differences between apostles and disciples? Yeah, thanks. So the disciples were Jesus's close companions during his uh, earthly ministry. And of course, there was the the inner circle of the 12, but there were other hangers on that followed him around. So they were the people who were the immediate uh, followers of Christ in his earthly ministry. And they spent time with him and and they were they were shaped by his teaching, but by his personality and his pastoral care. Okay, Uh, not all of those people received a special commission from Christ to go forth and teach with authority in his name. And that's what distinguishes an apostle. An apostle is someone that Christ specifically sent to go uh, teach and govern and administer the sacraments and to to, uh, advance the church throughout the world. And many of the apostles were disciples, but not all of them. There were apostles that were not disciples. So the apostle Paul, being the most prominent example, 
did not know Christ during Jesus's earthly ministry. He, he met Christ supernaturally on the road to Damascus after Christ's ascent into heaven, mm-hmm. uh, and yet he was still commissioned as an apostle. So the fact that he wasn't a disciple created a little bit of controversy in his own life. And there were people who said, well, you know, he's not really an apostle. He's a, he's kind of a you know newcomer to this, and we don't know if we should listen to Paul. And so Paul actually had to go receive Peter's approbation. He had to go up and meet Peter and also James and John and have them validate his ministry so that other people would recognize him as an apostle. Mm, wow. Well, there you go. Thanks so much uh, for your question. We have an anonymous question here. Dr. Anders, I used to go to an evangelical church that put a lot of emphasis on praying to ask God what decisions to make. For example, what car to buy, what job to apply for. Do Catholics pray like this as well? I always had trouble hearing a, quote, still small voice. Thanks, Anonymous. Yeah, I really profoundly appreciate the question. And there is absolutely nothing in divine revelation to suggest that we ought to pray that way uh, and that we could expect reliably to get answers from God for those kinds of questions. And I have been in those kinds of churches, and I've spent some time around that spirituality, and here's what generally happens. People who think that they can—you remember those magic eight-ball toys? Yes. You know, where you have this, many of our listeners may not know this, but back in the—I don't know, I had them in the 70s. I don't know, they probably existed before then. These plastic— uh, uh, round eight balls, and the bottom of it would have a sort of a, a translucent piece of plastic on it, and it was filled with a kind of goo. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and you would you would ask a question of your magic eight ball. You know, should I uh, ask Jane to the dance on Friday? Yeah, and then you would shake your magic eight ball and turn it upside down, and it had a little. Uh, like a like a ball inside with different answers, and one one uh-huh. side would float to the top, and you'd get an answer like, "Absolutely not," or "You might be lucky," or something like that. It was a it was a a, a silly form of divination, basically. Yes, right? very silly, very silly form of divination. It was just a you know a parlor game, and uh, there are people who treat prayer like it was their magic eight ball. You know, like it's a form of divination and, you know, should I ask Sally to the game on Friday? Except instead of waiting for a little plastic nodule to float up in a pile of goo, they're waiting for some impression or thought or image to float up in their consciousness. Mm. And what they have done is simply stipulate, well, you know, if something floats to the top of my mind or some thought or some image or some, uh, you know, unexpected feeling comes, well, well, that must be God. But that doesn't make any more sense than stipulating that the floating ball of goo in my magic eight ball must be God. Mm, No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So you end up having people uh, sanctify their own impressions, uh, their own intuitions, and calling them divine. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it can lead people into some pretty nasty situations. And I've I've known quite a few pastoral situations where people have gotten themselves Mm -hmm. and other people's lives really messed up by assuming that whatever pops into their head mm-hmm. uh, is, in fact, God, when that is when that is not the case. So it is good to pray to God for enlightenment, for wisdom, for prudence, but the process of human decision-making is just that, human decision-making, and the kind of tools that we should use are prudence and good counsel and, 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 uh, and reason and gathering the facts and that sort of thing. Yeah. Thanks so much for your anonymous email. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to get back to the phones here. We'll uh, begin with Braden in Louisiana. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. 
call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a second. Let me tell you about a new book now available from EWTN Publishing, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle. This book will inflame your heart with love for Jesus' Eucharistic heart through the heart of his mother. It'll help you enter into meditation with Jesus and Mary as never before. It'll open your heart to receive the graces available from the sacred mysteries. It's also an ideal resource for the Eucharistic revival coming up. Check it out, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, a new book from EWTN Publishing, now available at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning here with Braden in Louisiana, listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Hey, Braden, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hi, Dr. Anders. Uh, sorry, this is a bit of a long one, um, and it's about basically the means through which God can save people. Um, so say that there is a, a, a Muslim man, or a Hindu, perhaps, uh, pious, devout, he loves his God, and he, he has a family. He marries his wife, he, and he has children, he loves them, and he truly loves them. And then say, say he was to die, or perhaps sacrifice himself even, to rescue them from, I don't know, a burning building. He runs in, throws them out the window, and dies himself. And then, so he, he's dead now but he had true love in his heart. And as God is love, would there be some way, possibly, for God to use that kernel of, of, of truth as some sort of lifeline through which he could save them? Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question. The answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. And uh, that's the explicit teaching of the Church. So um, there's a there's a interesting book on the doctrine of grace by Cardinal... Um, Charles Journet. It's available public domain on the EWTN website. It's called The Meaning of Grace. And if you look it up, uh, Cardinal Journet has a whole section mm-hmm. of the book on what he calls uncovenanted graces. Graces really? that are distributed outside the normal means of salvation and some of the ways those graces might come to a person, right? And of course, the Second Vatican Council speaks about this explicitly, right? In, uh, in, um, in uh, Nostra Aetate and Lumen Gentium. So, yeah, uh, to be saved, we have to be conformed to Christ in charity through grace. And the sacraments of the Catholic Church and the teaching of the Catholic Church is the public means that Christ established in the world to bring that transformation about. And and also, in, in doing it that way, to form a people of God that can be salt and light to the rest of the world. But you'll note that the Catholic faith as salt and light has a positive impact uh, even outside its own its own borders, as mm. it were. I mean, you you look at what what has happened in the development of world religions over the last five hundred years, and they have all tended in a far more uh, humanistic direction, with a greater regard that is to say, with a greater regard for human dignity mm-hmm. and uh, and the and the equality of one's neighbor. Principles that were not necessarily endemic to those religions 500 years ago, but uh, but they have absorbed through contact with Christianity. Right. So there's the Catholic faith, sort of seeding Catholic principles out into the world. And the way Lumen Gentium describes it is that there are elements of truth and sanctification which properly belong to the Catholic Church 
but which get distributed beyond the Catholic Church. And this is easiest to see, say, in the separated brethren of Protestantism that have some but not of all of the sacraments. So, like, they have baptism, for example. It mm-hmm. properly belongs to the Church, but they have baptism. It's valid baptism. It's a means of grace for them. But even ideas like human dignity and love of neighbor— uh, it can be distributed beyond the formal boundaries of Catholicism and could become, in extraordinary circumstances, for someone the means of salvation, absolutely, if if the grace of God activates it, as it were. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Braden? Uh, yeah, yes, sir. Thank you very much. I think so. It's just, if, if God is all-loving, to, to what extent uh, it, it, you know, would all-loving be God, or in part God? Oh, you're asking, if God is love, then is love God? Well, to an extent, uh, because that's almost like Aphrodite, almost. You certainly don't want to be worshipping her. Uh, okay, well, you know, so Benedict, Pope Benedict has an encyclical on this very question called uh, Deus Caritas Est, mm-hmm. God is Love, where he distinguishes between the love that is eros and the love that is agape. And the erotic love is not bad, it's not wrong, but it's fulfilled in agapic love, which is that self-sacrificial love that Christ has for the Church. So, you know, the the sort of the, the Greek idea of erotic love, that's not what saves. That may be kind of a preparation for agapic love, but it's mm-hmm. that self-sacrificial, the kind of love that a parent has for a child or, uh, you know, that a husband has self-sacrificially for his spouse. That's, that's what we're talking about, agapic love, the kind of love that Christ had for the Church. Um, so not any kind of love, uh, but that can save, for sure. And when it's, when it's the gift of the Holy Spirit, it unites us to Christ and fits us for heaven. Braden, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or maybe you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. Here is Steve in St. Louis listening on the EWTN app today. Hello, Steve. What's on your mind? Hello, Mr. Price and Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate all that you do for many people. Um, my question has to do with a friend that is divorced and planning to remarry. Um, he is not Catholic, nor was his former wife, nor the, his present fiance. And I'm torn. Um, excuse me. Um, torn because of my friendship, um, but I also don't want to support divorce, um, but um, deeply involved with his family, especially his two daughters, and so not being there would be uh, difficult for the whole family, but being there would potentially give um, a wrong signal about my position about divorce in general. Now, the fact that he was civilly married and not sacramentally married, comes into play, of course. And also there were mitigating circumstances that came out after the divorce that I would imagine uh, would be grounds for an annulment if they were Catholic, but they don't have that recourse. Yeah, I I can give you my thoughts on this. So, as you correctly mentioned, uh, this couple, the question of having a marriage tribunal assess the validity of the marriage is really, it's a moot point. They don't have access to the Church's judgment, and so we really have to just commend them to the mercy of God, mm-hmm. and we don't know. And for that reason, 
I myself, in the situation that you describe, I would have absolutely no hesitation whatsoever at all about attending that ceremony. That doesn't mean that I'm presuming the validity of the ceremony. Like, I don't know, honestly. Right. Um, but I think that the, the amount of, uh, of misunderstanding of my actions if I stayed away would, would dwarf any possible likelihood that I could actually make myself understood. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, you know, if I'm kind of staying away out of protest, I, I don't think that protest would at all be understood or appreciated. And in fact, I'm not even sure what I'm protesting myself because I'm not, I, I don't know which marriage was valid, if either. Right, right. right. And, but, you know, any male-female union that is uh, sort of ordered to the family life and the procreation of children with a kind of at least a pretense of permanence and fidelity may not be a valid marriage, and I'm not, I'm not giving people a pass on this at all, but hear me out. It, it, it's, it's something like a simulacrum of marriage. It's like an attempt to approach what the Catholic Church would call marriage. And as such, there, there's something right about the idea, there's something right about the aspiration, even if they don't fully realize it. And I can't really make a judgment about have they realized the intrinsic goods of marriage or not. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know um, but uh, but I can try to accompany them in uh, in their best efforts as I understand them, and even if it's approaching a kind of simulacrum, as it were, uh, to uh, sort of help move them down the path towards a better understanding of marriage and family life and the moral life. And you know, the church has a position in moral theology called gradualism, which is that it's it's good to take a step in the right direction, you know, even if you don't get all the way there in one day. And so. You know, this this I would I would regard this as better than just sort of an overt and flagrant act of fornication. At least it's something on their part as an attempt to yeah. regularize and to bring some sort of covenantal structure to a relationship. And I'll I'll leave the ultimate validity of the thing up to the judgment of God. Steve, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for checking in from St. Louis. Call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. We have three lines open, 833-288-3986. Julianne, listening in Fort Worth on the EWTN app. Hey, Julianne, what's on your mind today? Hello. Well, I was, um, you know, when we pray the, um, the joyful mysteries, this always puzzles me when Simeon blesses uh, Mary, and he says, This child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and assigned to be opposed, so that, so that the secret thoughts of many will be revealed. And you, your sword, sword, uh, you yourself, a sword will pierce. The secret thoughts of many. I don't understand exactly what he means there. Is he talking about that, you know, that the, his crucifixion is going to be the fulfillment of the prophets? Or... Uh, and, and then who? So who are the many and and so forth? What is he re- talking about here? You know, it's a fantastic question. And actually, while while you were on hold, and I was trying to answer one question, I have been <laughs> attempting to to find Saint Thomas's commentary on this text. Whoa. Right, I was trying to do some rapid fire preparation for biblical exegesis, and it took me until about. Five seconds ago, I finally pulled it up, right? <laughs> but I'm looking down, and it's like three pages of text, so I'm not going to be able to read through it all the way. But for those of you who want to know, Aquinas.cc is a great website with the works of St. Thomas. So okay. I got there finally in the end, and that's okay. what I'm going to go read later to what Thomas good. has to say about this. I, I don't know, actually, in the context of the verse, precisely what, what, uh, what's being prophesied here. I mean, I can, make, I can take a stab at the dark, right? Uh, but it's just that right now. It's a stab in the dark. So... 
Christ, there are a number of senses in which we could understand Christ um, bringing about the revelation of the content of men's hearts. One of them that seems to me very relevant to early Christianity would be the public confession of sin. And uh, that is something that's very characteristic of Christianity in the first several centuries, that the, the, the sacrament of reconciliation or penance was performed publicly and not private confessional like we have it today. And in fact, it led early detractors of, um, of Christianity, like the pagan critic Celsus, to deride Christians and to mock them. And say, he once wrote that Christians are like, uh, they're like a group of frogs sitting around a pond, croaking out their sins to one another, right? Wow. Which I think is just a beautiful image. I yeah. appreciate Celsus for that criticism, <laughs> you know. But that's how pagans saw the Christian church. Oh, you guys are just going on about how sinful you are all the time, you nasty little toads, you know. <laughs> so the public confession of sin is definitely a way in which the Christian revelation has brought the, the, the thoughts of many hearts to be laid bare. Um, of course, then the other at the other end of the eschatological spectrum would be uh, the final judgment, when Christ will come back and will judge men publicly for what they have done, including the thoughts of their hearts. Mm. Well, there you go, Julianne. Thank you so much uh, for your call. Let's go now to Amy, a first-time caller in Knoxville, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hello, Amy. What's on your mind today? Hello. Um, I, I have a... Uh relative who um, has always been um, a really, really good Catholic, just very devout in every way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just recently, he announced to our family that he has decided to join the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, and I don't. I think part of it is rooted in um, his dissatisfaction with maybe how the Latin Mass has been treated, because he's been going to the Latin Mass, and um, also maybe... Um, he's drawn to their liturgy, he said, but um, I don't know. I've been trying to research everything I can about Eastern Orthodox to try to counter what he's drawn to, and I'm just looking for advice on maybe sources or what I could say to him to try to get him back into the Catholic Church. Okay. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So people who are very passionate about liturgy and maybe perhaps have a sort of antiquarian bias about them, uh, this trajectory that you've described is not an uncommon one of, of folks that get interested in the Latin Mass, and then they, uh, from there, they may that broaden their study of liturgy, and they get interested in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, and they may they may go Eastern as a, as a consequence. Well, the first thing that occurs to me for someone in that situation is there's no necessity to break fellowship, break communion with the chair of Peter to do that. And there, quite a few folks have changed rites within the Catholic Church and gone from being a Latin Rite Catholic to being an Eastern Rite Catholic. You can worship according to that liturgy, that liturgical tradition, using the, the, the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, and you can do that at a Ruthenian uh, Catholic Church or a Ukrainian Catholic Church mm-hmm. or a Melkite Catholic Church. And so uh, I'm not sure what's available in your town, but I, I guarantee you there will be an Eastern Rite Catholic Church someplace that that he could get to. So he doesn't need to he doesn't need to break communion in order to do that. Um, secondly, uh, he will find when he makes this move that um, that the cult, depending on per- what version of orthodoxy he he goes in for, that um, the the culture of of Eastern Christianity especially with respect to their own liturgy, is not like 
the culture of Latin traditionalism. Right? They have in common, like, older liturgies. Yeah. But the kind of um, ideological furor that typically surrounds Latin traditionalism, which is, has a note of reactionary about it, does not characterize the attitude of the East towards their own liturgy. And so he may feel less comfortable there than he thinks he will. Amy, thanks for your call. Hope it's helpful for you. Call to communion here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called to communion on this Wednesday afternoon. Glad you're with us here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to another longtime member of the EWTN radio family. And that would be Domestic Church Media Foundation in New Jersey, celebrating 15 years with us, serving New Jersey with four radio stations. How about that? Congratulations to Jim and Cheryl Manfredonia and their fabulous team at Domestic Church Media from all your friends here at EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now, and Laura is a first-time caller in Nebraska, listening on the great Spirit Catholic Radio. Laura, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Um, I am a revert back to the faith, thanks to you. I, um, but anyway, I'm married to a Missouri Synod Lutheran, and you're going to be in Omaha next week, and I'm going to be there, and my husband is going to be coming with me. Oh, great. And, yeah, um, I understand you're going to be talking about the Eucharist, and he says that they also believe in the real presence of Christ, but I think it's consubstantiation rather than transubstantiation. And um, I was just wondering, the more I read about it, the more confused I get. I don't even understand the difference. Well, I, I can clear that up, absolutely. And and for the record, I'm, I'm actually not speaking about the Eucharist in, in Omaha. I'm speaking about the concept of relationship with Christ. And the oh, Eucharist, okay. of course, plays into that, but yeah. it's not exclusively on the Eucharist. All right. Um, it's very simple, actually. It's not very complicated. The Catholic position is that the consecrated host, uh, ha- there is no bread and wine in the consecrated host at all. What appears to be bread and wine just is the substance of Christ's body and blood. So bread and wine become, they're changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood, soul and divinity. Um, The Lutheran position is that bread and wine remain, and the substance of Christ's body is added to them, if you will. So you get both. You get the substance of Christ's body and blood, soul and divinity, and bread and wine. Right? A, they they yeah. deny the cha- they they don't deny the real presence. They mm-hmm. deny the change. Okay. Of the one substance into another. So that's the difference. Is that helpful for you, Laura? Yeah. Oh, you made that sound so simple. <laughs> I don't know. The more I read about it, the more confused I got. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you happen to bring that up next Tuesday, that would be great. All right. Not likely, honestly. I, that's not going to be the topic of my talk. But, I mean, I'd be happy to talk to your husband about all kinds of things, including 
baseball that I know nothing about. But we can talk about the Eucharist, too. You know, that's fine. There you go. Laura, thanks so much for your call. Yeah, you're going to be in uh, Sioux City, Iowa, speaking there on behalf of Siouxland Catholic Radio. That'll be on Monday yep, evening. Yep. And then uh, in Omaha, on behalf of our friends at Spirit Catholic Radio, on Tuesday evening. We're doing the great Midwestern world tour here. You are a busy guy. Let's go now to uh, Max in Lincoln, Nebraska, speaking of uh, Midwest, uh, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Max, what's on your mind? today, sir. Uh, thanks for taking my question. So I have a friend who's a Presbyterian pastor, and he asked me this question. He said, with the Church's teaching on ex opere operato, why does the Catholic Church not do forced baptism? Right. Was- They'd be invalid. That's why. They'd be invalid, because no. the baptism can only be fruitfully, fruitfully received when there's faith, right, yeah. and, and, and repentance, uh, and so, I mean, all, all sacraments require uh, the uh, uh, the willing participation and the goodwill of the of the recipient in order for their for their efficacy. Right? They have to have the proper disposition. Mm. And so, a forced baptism would not have the proper disposition, and it wouldn't be a ba- valid baptism. That, so, it wouldn't count. That, that's why. Um, now, on that note, I, I wonder. A lot of Presbyterians don't know the history of their own tradition very well. Okay. And um, the, the notion of force in the application of the sacraments actually has some relevance to Presbyterian history. Uh, historians of Geneva know, most Presbyterian pastors don't. One of the great controversies in Calvin's Geneva was the question over baptismal names. Question over baptismal names. Because the pastors declared that you, you could not present your child for baptism with a uh, with a Catholic name, you couldn't say you know I'm going to present my child Francis for baptism or my child Catherine or something like that. Um, they insisted that you give your child uh, an Old Testament name. And really? So yeah, it was a big to do in like the 1540s in Geneva. Huh. Um, and uh, there's a woman named I think her name is Karen Spearling, if memory serves me correct, who wrote a great doctoral dissertation that was later published on the controversy over baptismal names in Calvin's Geneva in, I believe, the 1540s. Wow. And so what would happen is people would come and they would say, you know, who, you know, who do you bring for baptism? And the parents would say, well, I, I'm bringing, um, you know, Francis. And the, and the Presbyterian minister would say, I baptize thee Abraham. <laughs> 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 you know, and they just radically, just completely overrode, absolutely overrode, the uh, uh, the will of the parents because of their own peculiar ideology. Wow! And uh, and the, the 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 willingness to use force and compulsion in belief in Calvin's Geneva was uh, was palpable. So when Calvin arrived in Geneva in 1536, he was a you know young whippersnapper, wet behind the ears. He's only 27 years old, and he was hired basically to be a kind of glorified lector, right? Who would he would teach, but he didn't have a lot of immediate pastoral authority. Okay. And he said, well, you know, what this church needs is a really good, fantastic reformation, and I'm just the guy to bring it. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a confession of faith, and then we're going to get everybody in Geneva to subscribe to it. And if they don't, then I won't admit them to communion. Wow. That didn't go over so well. <laughs> All right, so they kicked him out. He had to go to Strasbourg for a couple of years and hang out with, uh, with uh, Martin Bootser. And he came back in 1539. It was got reinstalled. Mm. Did the same thing, and it was it was uh, it was all about imposing his sacramental and doctrinal priorities on the church w- against great opposition, 
And uh, with the threat, ultimately he succeeded in getting this power of excommunication if you didn't agree. He wanted to personally examine you, and, uh, and if you didn't sign on to all his everythings, he would, uh, he would excommunicate you, uh, you know, compel you in the manner of your children's baptisms. Uh, it, was, um, it was quite a regime, and historians love this because we have records of the Genevan consistory, which were these interrogations, um, these uh, inquisitorial interrogations that the pastoral staff did of everybody in Geneva. And um, and we have all those records written down. They're they're nigh on to illegible, but people have transcribed them. I've uh-huh. read them. So you get good social history out of reading these attempts to compel religion and religious practice and religious faith in Geneva, which ultimately served as the foundation of Puritanism, which uh, had you know wonderful ideas like burning people at the stake, you know, when they didn't do what you want them to do. So Yikes. so. It, Presbyterians are ones to talk when it comes to, you know, <laughs> compulsion in matters of religion. The biggest controversy that I studied, interest to me, was the Balsic controversy over predestination. And um, so uh, Balsic was a former Carmelite who'd become a Protestant, and he wanders into Geneva in the 1550s, and he hears a, a Calvinist pastor, wasn't Calvin himself, preaching a homily on um, the Gospel of John, and he mentioned his Calvin's understanding of predestination, and Balsic says, well, I don't agree with that. Uh, I, mean, I think Christians have free will and this other sort of thing. And um, and they immediately slapped him in prison, and Calvin wanted to have him executed. Wow. Not because he disagreed with Calvin, not because of his doctrine of predestination, but because he had the audacity to contradict Calvin. And and they they pushed through a resolution where contradicting Calvin or contradicting the teaching of the Institutes became a civil crime punishable in law mm. in Geneva. Now, the only reason that Bolsic escaped execution was because the city of Bern, which is another Protestant city that wasn't Calvinist, interceded and put a lot of political pressure on Calvin to, to let Bolsic go. So, like I said, their compulsion, they're ones to talk. Yeah, no And, of course, kidding. their doctrine is that God compels. Their doctrine of salvation, mm. the, the Presbyterian doctrine of salvation, is that grace is irresistible. Wow. That God compels you to believe. And a fancy word for that is called monergism. Calvin's, uh, Calvin's, Catholics, by contrast, are synergistic in their view of salvation, that God's grace is offered to us, but that our free cooperation is required for grace to be efficaciously received. Calvinists are monergistic. They believe in the, in the, compuls- the, the compulsive power of divine grace. And Calvinist theology, because of its sort of compulsive element has been implicated in things like antebellum slavery and the apartheid regime. Mm. Right. So, like I said, you're ones to talk about compulsion. There you go. Max, thanks so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for you and for your friend as well. It's called a communion here on EWTN. You know, this month's devotion in the church is to Our Lady of Sorrows, and we ask Mary to pray for us so that we can unite ourselves to her in her sorrow in the hope that we will one day also share her joy in the triumph of her son. If you'd like to know more about this uh, special devotion, you can go to EWTN.com, EWTN.com. Back to the phones now. Here is Ken in Michigan listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Ken, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, good afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Andrews. I really appreciate your uh, presentation on the radio. I have a question regarding the nature of God and his various attributes. I heard you make reference to a book uh, last week or so that you recommended to help 
better understand the nature of God and would wonder if you can share that title again. Sure. The book I referenced was The Presence of God by Anselm Moynihan, O.P. It specifically deals with the modes of the divine presence. It doesn't deal with all the divine attributes. It does deal, however, with the modes of the divine presence. Uh, if you want something more specifically on the attributes, honestly, you can't do any better than the first book of the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas's Treatise on the One God. There you go. Ken, thanks so much for your call from Michigan this afternoon. Uh, Therese is watching us on Facebook today. Therese says, recently, a family member who was a DRE at her small parish, that is a, a director of religious education. Anyway, this person posted on Facebook that she went out of town recently to celebrate a, quote, marriage between two men. Well, I was saddened by her post because I considered her a person who believed what the church taught about marriage. So would you say that she gave scandal by posting about her attendance? And what is the best response to these kind of announcements uh, out there on uh, social media? Yeah, thank you. Absolutely, she gave scandal. Hands down, she gave scandal. No doubt about it. And uh, I think it's imperative that her pastor know about this because this woman should not be a DRE. By, by no means. I mean, I absolutely should. I mean, qualification number one for being the director of religious education in your parish is you should believe the Catholic faith. Well, yeah. If you don't believe the Catholic faith, you do not need to be a DRE, right? Nope. That, nope. That's, you just you might do all kinds of things in the church, but DRE, not one of them, all right? So I would not address this in social media. Yeah. But I would bring it to the attention of the pastor. Therese, thanks so much for watching us today on Facebook Live. Here's a question now from Tony in South Africa. Hi, Dr. Anders. I'm curious about the church founded in India by St. Thomas the Apostle. What are the differences and similarities to the Catholic Church? Is the church in union with the church in Rome, and do they also practice sacred tradition? Kind regards from Tony in South Africa. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So um, the church from the beginning, from the earliest centuries, as the apostles went out to the four corners of the world, became instantiated in different cultures. And then the various embellishments that grew up around the liturgical celebration and the legal regimes that came into existence in different regions are what we today know as the distinct rites of the church, R-I-T-E-S. And we have you've got the Latin rite, uh, you have the Byzantine rite, you have both both the West and Eastern Syrian rites. You have um, uh, you have the Chaldean rite. You have the Alexandrian rite. Um, I'm leaving out a few, but you know that's the basic idea. E yeah. So anyway, the um, uh, the 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 Indian Church is of the Eastern Syrian variety, the Assyrian, the Assyrian variety, and so it has a liturgical history and culture that's very different from that of the Latin Church. And today, the what's called the Syro Malabar and the Syro Malankar churches in India, there are versions of that that are in union with the Church of Rome and are fully Catholic, and mm -hmm. there are versions that are not in union with the Church of Rome and therefore would fall in line with the orth Orthodox communions. Very good, and uh, thanks so much uh, for your question here. Call to communion on EWTN. This is from Shay, who says, Dear Dr. Anders and Mr. Price, I have a question regarding the Eucharist, the Lamb of God and the position of other Christian denominations in this regard. There are a lot of pastors with zeal and love of God. They seem to be really guided by Jesus. My question is, 
How come Jesus does not reveal to them the importance of the Eucharist, as the main point of salvation was the sacrifice on the Lamb, sacrifice of the Lamb on the cross? Also, I recently read on the internet that a Christian guy in Texas shipped red heifers to Israel to be used as burnt offerings. As Christians, are we supposed to believe in any more offerings as Jesus has offered himself once and for all? Thanks, Shay. Yeah, thank you, Shay. I appreciate the question. So, uh, to begin with, God has revealed to enthusiastic Protestant pastors the importance of the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of the Mass. He has revealed it publicly in the revelation that Christ gave to the Church, right? So it's there in Scripture and sacred tradition for anyone to see, and it's publicly proclaimed by the Catholic Church throughout the world. Um, uh, as to why some particular Protestant doesn't like that or doesn't adhere to it, uh, uh, culture, uh, personality, family background, and prejudice go a long way to explain why most Protestants are unconcerned with the public teaching of the Catholic Church. So they are not, you know, they've been sort of brought up to think that the Church is the whore of Babylon or the Antichrist or or backwards or overly ritualistic or whatever their criticism of Catholicism might be. So they're not particularly interested in regarding the the teaching of Christ. I would be personally very hesitant to say of any soul, well, I can tell that person is guided by Jesus. And you made that description of these folks. You said, well, they, they seem to be guided by Jesus. I, I would not make that claim about anybody, not even, certainly not myself, right? Uh, I aspire to be guided by Jesus, uh, but I, I wouldn't presume to assume that I am guided by Jesus. And but and religious enthusiasm is not an adequate indicator of the presence of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life, right? Um, uh, frenetic religious activity is not a sufficient indicator of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Uh, uh, high church attendance in one's congregation is not sufficient to indicate the presence of the Holy Spirit in one's life. Um, the the more reliable, not infallible, but more reliable indicator is, uh, does an individual possess the character that Christ possesses? Yeah. Right? Uh, have they assimilated themselves to the person of Christ? Now, now we're getting somewhere in terms of assessing yeah. the presence of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. And um, so, I, but but even then, that 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 can. I would be very hesitant to say, well, they're obviously guided by Christ. It's not obvious to me at all that they are. But it's not obvious to me, right, that even members of the Catholic communion are on any given day guided by the Spirit of Christ. Mm -hmm. And what about this business about the red heifers? Oh, yeah, no red heifers. Red heifers are out, unless you like a good Omaha steak, and then I suppose you could eat your red heifer. I suppose right? you could. Um, and what if they have red heifers in Omaha, actually? I'm headed to Omaha. So well, you so, know, you may uh, have to do a little uh, site survey there. You may have to find out, yeah. So, right. so sacrifice, the, the Levitical sacrificial system was definitively uh, abrogated uh, with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And uh, it is only an extremely aberrant theology known as dispensationalism, which maintains that they will that they will start up again during the eschaton at Christ's return. But that is not the Catholic teaching. That's not the teaching of sacred scripture. Shay, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here are two questions from Tony in Cincinnati. Number one, 
I was reading a book on the history of finance, which suggested the Protestant Reformation was key to the development of capitalism. I'd appreciate your thoughts on the degree to which the Reformation itself and or its social context encouraged the development of capitalism. And then the second question, I was listening to another Catholic radio program, which was on that day having some technical difficulties getting the callers heard by the hosts and the listening audience. The host asked the program guest, who was a priest, to, uh, hey, say the St. Michael prayer because she believed powerful spirits were keeping those calls from being heard and answered. I find it concerning when everyday inconveniences or, quote, things not going our way are attributed to the devil or evil spirits. What's the proper Catholic response in such situations? Many thanks. Tony in Cincinnati. Yeah, thanks. So the, the thesis of the Protestant origins of modern capitalism uh, are old, right? And, um, well, fairly old. So they, the most famous proponent of that position is Max Weber's uh, book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, which famously argued for a close connection between Protestantism and capitalism. Now, mm-hmm. at, at one point, um, John Calvin personally did make a significant contribution to the development of capitalism in that he was the first Christian theologian explicitly to justify the loaning of money at interest, right? So so loaning money at interest, otherwise sometimes called usury in the tradition, mm-hmm. has almost always been frowned on in, uh, in Christian history. And Calvin made an argument, theological argument, that it was allowable under some circumstances. And so you can't really have capitalism without finance, and so that was kind of a critical move. Now, what that recognition doesn't take into account is that the Catholic Church had had for many centuries come up with workarounds. And so one of the biggest borrowers in, uh, in medieval Europe was, in fact, the papacy. Right. I mean, this is this is how this is how the Medici's got rich. Right. Mm. They were loaning money to the papacy. And even before you had the sort of explicit loaning of money and interest, the Catholic Church actually invented the futures contract. You know, if you go up to the Chicago Board of Trade, yes. or I guess now it's the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, yeah. you can trade futures on corn and wheat and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's a big part of the engine of uh, the finance of, uh, of agriculture, of big ag, if you will. Well, the Catholic Church actually invented the futures contract because the, what they would do to get around the ban on interest is they would um, they would simply engage in a futures contract, a kind of a, a financial swap, and the uh, the financier would charge a, a quote unquote service fee, hmm. right, to deliver against the future contract. Okay, and so it was a roundabout way of allowing interest by under another name. Yeah, and. Uh, so um, Rodney Stark, the sociologist, has written a good bit about the the um, the, inf- the importance of the Benedictine monastery actually for the development of of capitalism and the money economy, mm-hmm. and uh, the growth of the money economy and trade. Um, I mean, this is a 12th century development in in the West. It predates uh, Calvinism by 400 years, and there's a um, there is a book by um, Lester Little, oh, what is the name of the book? It's right on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, that treats uh, the uh, the poverty movement and the money economy in the 12th century. So, uh-huh. I mean, this is a is an area of study that's pretty well developed. So, Calvinism had an important role to play. 
um, but uh, but there were precursors even within uh, within Catholic medieval, medieval Europe. And if you like capitalism, you think that's a great thing. And if you don't like capitalism, you think that's a bad thing. Yeah. And what about this business of uh, attributing to the devil things that aren't going our way? Yeah. So, personal opinion. Personal opinion. Yep. Um, I uh, I think that's really harmful. I think it's really very very harmful. Um, because to begin with, we're not dualists, and we do believe in God's providence, and we think that the Lord superintends everything that happens. So nothing happens apart. Jesus is not a sparrow falls apart from the will of God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the Catholic Church also recognizes, has always believed, that, that uh, there are such things as natural causes, and they are instruments of divine providence, that God works through secondary causes, including natural processes. And so things like like induction work in science because there's a regularity to nature that that God put in there that's part of the created order and St. Thomas in the Summa Contra Gentiles has a has a lengthy discussion of uh, the reality of secondary causes and the validity of induction in scientific method right so all of these things are presumed by our doctrine of divine providence and uh, and if you ascribe everything to supernatural agents well it really renders rational knowledge of the physical world impossible and it tends to make you really paranoid yeah. and uh, kind of a bad dinner guest. Sure. Tony, thanks for your uh, questions there from Cincinnati. Let's go quickly to Ricky in Omaha, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Ricky, we've got about a minute. What's on your mind today? Ah, bummer. Well, my question may be longer than a minute, so that's unfortunate. But uh, um, it's kind of a two-parter question. Um, number one, uh, Dr. Anders, uh, how, uh, based on your estimation, because I've heard different things from different Catholics, how many ex cathedras statements have actually been made in uh, the history of the papacy, and um, how, how does one actually recognize that uh, an ex cathedra statement is made, because sometimes it seems kind of like a moving target? Okay. Um yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. So uh, the answer to the question, how do you recognize an ex-cathedra statement, is the, basically it comes out and says, this is an ex-cathedra statement. I mean, oh, it's okay. very explicit. They better not use that word. Um, but uh, here, here's a borderline case. Here's a borderline case, okay? But I'll, I'll give you an example. In John Paul II's Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, which was his apostolic letter on on uh, w- the possibility of women's ordination. Yes. He says, in order that all doubt may be removed regarding a matter of great importance, uh, in virtue of my ministry of confirming the brethren, I declare that the church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women, and the judgment is definitively to be held by all the church's faithful. Right. So that's that was, he was a half an inch away from infallibility at that point. <laughs> all he had to do to make it infallible was say, and and we know that this is a matter of public revelation. This has been given by God's revelation that this is the case, yes. right? And that was all he lacked in making it in making it uh, an infallible dogmatic declaration. But that kind of language, where like I'm laying down the record, letting you know, laying down the law, setting the record straight, so everybody will know. That's a pretty big hint that we're approaching infallibility. Sure, Ricky. Thanks for your call. We'll see you tomorrow here on Call to Communion. God bless.